You're listening to audio from the Portland Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to our ministry, please visit www.portlandchurch.org. Patricia Mize is going to to lead us through communion. Well, good morning. Um, So we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. And so um, I'm going to be reading from Luke 18, um, 10 through 14. So this is one of the the parables that Jesus Jesus, um, talked about. (laughs) It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So clearly there's a good guy and a bad guy in this story, right? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you lived back then, you might have had a very different idea of who the good person and bad person here was. Because you might look at the Pharisee and think, well, this is a religious scholar and elite, and so you should feel you know, good that he's, he's this person. And then you would look at the tax collector the tax collector and tax collectors were thought of as traitors and corrupt, you know, they colluded with the Roman occupiers. And so they were lumped together with sinners and prostitutes. I mean, we see that throughout the Bible. It's like you eat with sinners and prostitutes, you eat with uh, tax collectors and sinners. Um, And so you might look at that person and say, well, yeah, they're sinners. That's who he is. So it, you know, perspective matters. And so when I look at the story and I think, okay, where do I fit in in this story? It would be easy to say, well, I'm like the tax collector because we think of that as like the right answer. Um, But the truthful answer is that I'm both. That sometimes I act like the tax collector and sometimes I act like the Pharisee. And sometimes I act like the tax collector, I act like the Pharisee, but I think I'm acting like the tax collector. It's, It's not clear and it's a constant battle. And I think about this scripture and this dynamic when I think about, you know, current events and I think about the way that I grew up because I grew up in a very covertly and sometimes overtly racist household. Um, And we didn't call it that, of course. We never used that word, Um, but that's what we were. And I grew up in an all-white neighborhood. I didn't really socialize with people of color, so... When I grew up, that's that was my viewpoint, and it it um, lasted into my adulthood. Like for most of my adult life, I didn't believe in systemic racism. I I didn't even want to talk about it because it made me feel uncomfortable. Um, and so that was it was really um, difficult, you know, to have my life, have the my worldview, um, you know, challenged in that way. You know, because I wanted to believe that the U.S. was had fair laws and, you know, everybody had equal protection under the law and that everything was fair. But 
you know, obviously it's not. So when I started to listen about like five or six years ago, I started to, to change my mind. I started to listen and it, it was uncomfortable, it's still uncomfortable sometimes. You know, I start to, to see like how much I don't know about our nation's history, about how racism has like intertwined into the, the American cultures and the institutions. It's jarring, you know, and I see what's going on now, like we're in extraordinary times. And I see a lot of individuals who are, who are waking up, who are, you know, really doing some soul searching. But I also see individuals who are having a hard time with this and they're having negativity towards like Black Lives Matter and the protests. And it's really easy for me to think, wow, I'm glad I'm not like them anymore. But then I mess up. In fact, I messed up yesterday. I said three words and then I had to spend five minutes talk to my daughter about why those three words, I shouldn't have said them. So how am I any better? I'm not, I'm a sinner. And so it's not always clear, you know, Pharisee, tax collector, it's, it's not always clear. And it's a constant battle. Um, I do want to say that if somebody's starting to wake up, I know how much, like when I started to, you know, change my mind, how much like shame and um, fear I had of talking about it because I was afraid I was going to be judged. Um, and this time is very polarizing. So waking up right now probably would have, I would have freaked out. You can talk to me. I, you know, I've been through it. So please feel free. If you want to talk to somebody, you can talk to me. Um, anyways, so going back to the cross, I'm just so grateful for the cross because, you know, Jesus died for our sins and his forgiveness is perpetual. So even during this time when we're facing these issues that where the path to repentance isn't always clear and it's certainly not easy that Jesus just, you know, we're forgiven for, for that. And so we can strive towards doing better. And I'm just really grateful for Jesus' example and how he loves people regardless of where they are in the world. So on that, let's focus on him all the way from the other side of the country, nearly from Atlanta, Georgia. Very special guest, Jim Lenahan. Jim, it's great to have you here. Um, I thought it might be beneficial, as embarrassing this is, to give a little bit of my background and then get into what I want to talk about. Is that okay? Please. I was born in 1958, so you can do the math. Um, my worldview, uh, as it relates to race, is something that you know I think would be beneficial for you to hear. Uh, my family participated in what was called white flight. And then if you're aware of it, when I was three months old, uh, blacks began coming into our neighborhood, which meant whites need to leave because the real estate values are going to plummet and you got to get out of here quick, which really, of course, caused them to plummet. But uh, we moved to the suburbs and uh, I lived in a, a protective cocoon, a bubble of sorts uh, for the next 18 years. Uh, my only window into the black community, quite frankly, was the evening news. Uh, we'd watch it together as a family, and the Philadelphia News uh, loved covering Philadelphia inner-city violence. And uh, they regularly were reporting on robberies and murders and the like. And so, unfortunately, um, my view and conclusion about Black people was they're largely uneducated, they're poor, and they're prone to violence. That was just... Uh, Again, it's all I saw was the people on the news. Uh, when I went to college, um, our fraternity sponsored something called Operation, not we didn't sponsor, we participated in something called Operation Santa Claus. And Operation Santa Claus 
uh, brought uh, Christmas presents into the kids in the most desperately poor areas of the city. And uh, all freshmen, I had no interest really in participating because my racism, but all freshmen had to participate. And uh, much to my parents' objections, strong objections, uh, I decided to go. I told them, I said, let me reassure you. Uh, and we had been reassured the Philadelphia police are in full gear. They will protect us white folk as we venture in to uh, give these kids gifts for Christmas. And, um, you know, the, the experience was had the potential to be life-changing. It had the potential, and it didn't change my life, and I'll explain why. Again, I'm ashamed to say why, but I had never seen poverty face-to-face. -face. I'd never been so close to just abject poverty, and uh, it was worse than I ever imagined, quite frankly, and I couldn't believe the people in the United States were actually living like this, and I thought, you know, the land of opportunity, it's, it's not the land of opportunity for these people, that's for sure, and for the first time in my life, honestly, I began to feel sympathy, which I know that's not necessarily what they wanted me to feel, but I felt sympathy and I felt compassion for the black community. But unfortunately, those feelings were very short-lived. Um, I went back to school after that and uh, me and a couple of buddies went out for a run as we would do during the week. We'd go out for a run by the river and our normal path took us down uh, through a black neighborhood, uh, not a great neighborhood, but it was always empty in the middle of the week. But for some reason, the kids were off school that day. I had no idea why. And uh, they started kind of heckling us as we were running through. Then they started calling us names and they started chasing us and they started throwing rocks and bottles at us. And I was hit several times and um, kind of made my way out of there as quickly as I could, made my way back up to school. And you know, one of the things I'm going, why were those kids out of school? And unfortunately, I found out it was an observation of Martin Luther King's birthday before it was a national holiday schools in Philadelphia had taken off um, and they were the kids um, honoring Martin Luther King that put an end to my sympathy for a long time and um, it, it not only put an end to my sympathy it fueled my racism it fueled my prejudices it just fed them and so I retreated to my white bubble again I uh, decided I'm gonna steer clear of all black people from that point forward they're, they're, they can't be trusted they're dangerous so I returned to my all-white fraternity, uh, and then over the next five years, graduated from my all-white, almost all-white, not all-white, but almost all-white college. I joined an all-white consulting firm. I worked with nearly all-white clients. I moved to an all-white neighborhood. I actually bought a white house in that white neighborhood, and I settled into an all-white church. It was actually here in Atlanta, in Marietta, East Cobb. But fortunately, by the grace of God, that too would be short-lived. My wife, Helen, and I, um, literally the day we arrived here in Georgia, uh, began receiving invitations to what was called the Lennox Church of Christ. And actually, your speaker last week was one of the first people I met at the Lennox Church of Christ, Kevin Holland. The Lennox Church of Christ is what later became the Atlanta Church of Christ. But we had rejected all kinds of invitations, but this particular topic intrigued me. It was on marriage. Uh, actually, specifically, it was on how to be a better wife. And I thought, oh, my wife, Helen, could really benefit from that. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. But um, the class, we went, we went the next week and found out how to be a better husband. And I, I was moved by the classes. I felt like they were relevant. I felt like they were impactful. But the thing that struck me more powerfully than anything else, and I, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but it was how people were treating one another, in particular, how they were treating me. I, I was shocked at this multiracial church 
welcoming me in the way they're welcoming me. I mean, really, I sensed it the, the moment I walked in the door. And, you know, being in the corporate world, being especially in consulting, um, I was used to being around people who were self-absorbed, self-focused, and self-serving. I mean, that, that's how you make it. Well, that's not, that's a strong blanket statement, but that's how I was trained to make it in the world. And yet these people seem really interested in just getting to know me. And uh, I asked the guy that invited us, I said, and I was, I was only half joking, honestly. I said, do these people get some sort of bonus if I join their church? Like, is there some financial incentive to get a portion of my tithe if I start giving here? I, I, I couldn't understand how they could be so nice to me. But then I noticed they weren't just actually treating me that way. They're treating each other that way. And I was stunned that white people were treating black people that way. People like Kevin Holland, people, you know, like Steve Bowen, uh, just great brothers, guys I came to know and really respect and love. But I looked around and I was shocked. There was no division between blacks and whites in that meeting space. There was no separation. There was no hesitation between them. There was no trepidation, no judgment that appeared to me. And it was stunning. I'd never seen anything like it before. And so I wanted in. I, I, I didn't like that about me. I didn't like that I was racist. That it's not something I took pleasure in. It was more self-protection than it was desire. And uh, but I wanted to. I went. I wanted. In. I wanted to be be a part of their club. I wanted to become like them. I wanted to be able to treat people the way they treated them. And so, of course, when I said I wanted in, they started studying the Bible with me and my wife. And it was during that time I figured out what their secret sauce was. You see, I had thought that these people were just great folks that happened to all be in this same church, like. Just amazing people were raised without racism, and it, that actually wasn't the case. It was a group of people who I didn't understand at the time, but I've come to understand were living under the lordship of Jesus. They had a master, and it wasn't themselves. They were disciples of Jesus, and they were trying to be transformed into his likeness, and that's that was their goal. And that was what I was beginning to see. That was what I noticed. And so there's a passage I thought of in, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, it's a parable, it's a familiar parable, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And I felt like that was me. I found the hidden treasure. I wasn't looking for it. I just stumbled upon it. I was looking to get help for my marriage. But it was with that same sense of joy that I, too, sold everything I had to buy the field. I literally sold everything I had to buy the field. No one told me to do it. No one even asked me to do it. But I gladly gave up everything for what Paul called that surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And more than knowing him, I could actually become like him, which was probably most exciting to me. And so in the 38 years that have passed since that time, I've only grown um, more deeply appreciative for having found the kingdom of God. That's what I found. I found the kingdom of God. And yet... At the same time, and as we talked earlier, I've grown increasingly concerned about the division that's in the kingdom. I'm haunted by the words of Jesus that's in uh, uh, Mark chapter 3, where he says, the kingdom divided itself cannot stand. It can't. It, it just cannot stand. There's, it's just not possible. It just will collapse under the weight of separation. And so what I want to speak about is my heart's desire, which is to give other people the opportunity that that Lennox Church of Christ gave to me. And that opportunity was to see what the kingdom of God really was. And in order for it to stand, uh, for the kingdom to stand, 
I thought of two things that need to happen. Now, again, I've preached on this four or five times now, not this subject, but I've preached on racial issues four or five times now. And I, I want to come up with something, you know, that captured where my heart is today rather than where it was five weeks ago, four weeks ago, three weeks ago, or two weeks ago. And so I, I thought of a passage, in, it's in Luke chapter 17. And again, none of these are uh, like world beater passages. They're all Jesus passages, though, which makes them world beater passages. But they're not nothing new uh, for any of you here. But in Luke chapter 17, and verse 20, it says, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, if you remember, they were looking for it. They wanted physical evidence of some kind of power that was, you know, going to save them. And so they're looking around trying to find where the kingdom is, when's it coming. And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And so the first thing I want to say is, I think in order for the kingdom to stand, each one of us individually needs to understand that the kingdom of God is within us. And I think it would be much easier. I, I, I'd be really happy. Steve, I remember you did a sermon one time. Uh, let's talk about the song that's um, Lead Me to Some Soul Today. And uh, you said you changed the word to lead some soul to me today. I mean, I, I'm always looking for an easy way to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. And I'd love to be able to walk in this, walk with somebody in some magnificent cathedral and say, here it is. This is the kingdom of God. Or invite them to sit with me in the pew and listen to the most amazing worship experience they've ever encountered and say, there it is. That's the kingdom of God. That would be so much easier. But Jesus said, no, you're not going to be able to say here it is or there it is because it's within you. They're not options to say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God's within me. And so if people are going to see the kingdom of God. It's going to be by the way I live my life. It's going to be the way it's going to be based on the way I love them and and, and I think something we underestimate is going to be based on the words that come out of my mouth and how they come out of my mouth. Um, I had a lot of work to do. Uh, I came out of a very worldly environment. There was a lot of junk in my heart that needed to be dealt with. And I knew I wasn't going to have things come out of my mouth that were attractive. In fact, uh, my Bible talk took me out the night I was baptized I'm telling this story and a big old whopper of a curse word came out. <laughs> story. I'm like, am I going back to hell? But anyway, um, but I had a lot of work to do. There's a lot of house cleaning that need to take place. And so where I began is where I think all of us begin, and that is the obvious things. The things that bother your conscience. You need the word of God for these things to be declared a sin. You know they're wrong. And so that's where I began. I began with the things that bothered my conscience, uh, that violated my conscience. But then the tricky part came next, right? It was those evil thoughts and attitudes that I was unaware of, things that were just not in line with the will of God. They're the harder ones to get out. And I think that's quite frankly where a lot of people are. There's things in their head and ways of thinking and ways of seeing things that they've not really had challenged by somebody who thinks or sees things differently because we've gotten polarized. And I, I think about a passage, uh, I, I won't turn to it, uh, I'll, I'll just reference it's in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul's talking about the ignorance of the Gentiles and, and clearly they were ignorant of biblical things right and he, he said but the ignorance in them is due to the hardening of their hearts and it what it resulted in was them losing their sensitivity to sin like it didn't even bother their conscience and it, it led to them indulging their flesh and 
that's where the hard work was for me because again, the things that violated my conscience, I knew were wrong and we shouldn't be doing that. But then there were those other things that I go, eee. you know, when you begin seeing it, you begin talking about it, you realize, gosh, I was completely ignorant that that was an ignorant thing to say. I can give you many examples. Um, but years of hard heartedness had dulled my senses and they resulted in me indulging my mind and my mouth in ways that were deeply offensive to God and to others. I was ignorant of, of the destruction or the destructive power of uh, these thoughts and these attitudes. And I think that's where we need to focus a lot of attention. I, I think we're following the way of the world and we're becoming more entrenched in our positions, which another word for entrenched is hard hearted. And, and I think as we, we try to build our case or defend our cause, what we tend to do is, right, we, we gather facts that we know will support our position or we listen to opinions that will support our decisions. And we've stopped listening to the opposite side of the story, the other side. We just look for reinforcements for our own and we don't realize then it's wicked because, wow, a lot of Christians feel this way. A lot of people agree with me. We stop talking about race. This, this Don't you understand? There's five or 10 Christians that feel that same way. Well, let's get into a dialogue with some black brothers and sisters and see if they think and would agree that that's a great uh, strategy to move off this case. And so I think, you know, when our dialogue is simply with people who we know agree with us, or it's maybe we're, we are entertaining the opposite viewpoint, but what we're doing is we're just sort of waiting and listening until we get our chance to speak and prove them wrong. And I think I, I before I want to seek before I want somebody to understand what I feel, I want to seek to understand what they feel, what they think, and why they think differently. And this can be applied really in a myriad of ways. But I think we need to dialogue with an open heart and seek out perspectives that actually challenge our worldview or challenge the things that we conclude are right. And that's the beauty of the kingdom of God. That's, that's what I encountered at the Lennox Church. It's people who are willing to talk about these things. And people are willing to say, yeah, is this right? What do you feel about this? What do you think about that? And, and, and that's the, the amazing opportunity I think we have. And I think we can seek out the other side while at the same time we're convinced we're on the same side. So we're only seeking out the other side of an issue, but we're on the same side of God. I think politics is a great example of that. Like people say, why would a, a Christian ever vote for whom? Whoever it might be, either side. And I'm like, that's a good question. Ask it and, and get an answer from somebody who didn't vote for your guy or your woman. And I think as a result for the kingdom of God, if it's going to be revealed through our lives, we have to have those kinds of conversations. And I think having the kingdom of God within, within me means that I have access to all the power to transform me into the likeness of Christ so that I can be a person who shares the kingdom with others. Secondly, and I got this, said two things. First is recognize the kingdom of God within you. That's more of a personal thing. I think... There's a second thing, which I think is more of a collective thing, and that is we have to understand that God's kingdom must be inclusive of all nations. I think, and I, I don't know if I want to go off on this tangent, but I'll, I'll speak about it briefly. Um, churches, at least in Atlanta, that are led by black ministers get continually more black over time. And I go, why is that? Good question. Let's talk about it. Let's talk to white people who have left there. And, and there's a problem. There's just there's the problem. And so we can get satisfied and say, yeah, we are a, we are a kingdom of all nations, but our church can be very racially divided. And say, well, that's, you know, we, we each kind of have our own style and flavor. Well, 
I don't like when it, it falls along racial lines. You know, from Genesis forward, Jesus or God envisioned a kingdom that was made up of all nations. The prophets talked about it. I, I think of Isaiah, I think of Micah, they both talked about it. They both have this vision of nations, all people of all nations streaming to the kingdom of God. John, of course, in Revelation chapter 7 had the vision. He saw what heaven was going to look like, and God's dream had come true. He got to see it was true. And it says there in Revelation 7, the people, every tribe, every nation, every people, and every tongue. And, you know, I think oftentimes we go, well, yeah, we'll have some Americans, and we'll have some Europeans, and we'll have some Africans, and so we're diverse. Well, okay, but then there's going to be people of every tribe also, right. and every people, and every tongue. And I think what the point being that this could be a very diverse place. And now's the time to bring that diversity streaming into the kingdom of God. And yet the world, the kingdom of the world, is intrinsically tribal by nature. It's heavily invested in defending our position or, or, or worse, advancing our position, advancing our own people group, our own nation, our own ethnicity, our own state, our own religion, our own ideologies, our own political agendas. The, the kingdom of the world is that way. The kingdom of the world is intrinsically tribal. The kingdom of God is supposed to be intrinsically universal. And it's really centered on people living out the sole purpose to replicate the love of Christ to all people at all times and in all places without any condition. And so I look at a story in the Bible like the one in John chapter 4 where Jesus encounters all we know her as the woman at the well. And uh, we obviously come to learn a lot about the woman at the well during the story. But we know that's, well, maybe you don't know, but that story ends very well. That story ends up with a whole bunch of Samaritans being coming to faith in Christ. And I think it began when John said Jesus had to go to had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. <laughs> Every other Jew seemed to avoid the place. They stayed away from those people. I hate using that phrase, but that's what was going on. They saw him as those people. And so a Jew would go way out of his way to avoid that going from Judea to Galilee. They Let's, let's, let's work around that. And they were constantly coming up with workarounds for it. And yet Jesus said, I have to go through there. <clears throat> and I think if Jesus knew, which he did, he had talked about this, that the good news was for all nations and all tribes and all peoples and all languages, it had to include those people the Jews absolutely despised, the ones they considered half-breeds. I think our racism probably pales in comparison to the racism between Jews and Samaritans. It was like whoa, you're related. I mean, you don't have to go back too far. You guys are in the same family. No, we're not. You know, it's like, ugh. anyway, when I look at John 4, I, I think, well, how did Jesus bridge the gap between him, a Jewish male, and her, a Samaritan female? How did he overcome these enormous cultural and religious and racial barriers that exist between the two of them? I think his example provides two really great insights uh, of what he did and how he approached this. The first one was he sought out common ground. And I heard this uh, by a sermon by another guy, and I thought it made a lot of sense. And he said, the fact that Jesus met this woman, and he could have met her anywhere, right? He could have met her anywhere along the road. He chose to meet her on common ground, which was Jacob's well. And both the Samaritans and the Jews, if they, they didn't agree on anything, one thing they did agree on was they held Jacob in very high regard. And it's probably one of the only things they held in common. And that's where Jesus decided, I'm going to meet this woman. 
and celebrate our commonality. But the second thing he did was obviously way more shocking than that. He asked her for a drink of water. And when you think about that, what is he going to drink out of? He's going to have to drink out of the same vessel she drinks out of or, and the other Samaritans probably drank out of. So he was going to put his lips on her dirty vessel, her Samaritan vessel? Yes. He said, I want to share this cup. I want you to share your cup with me. I think oftentimes I'm willing to share my cup and then I throw it away. But he said, I'll take your cup, thank you, and, and we'll share this together. She was unclean. She was a woman. She was a moral. She was a Samaritan. But they shared a cup. The Jews would have gone berserk. But by treating her with dignity and respect, she dropped her guard. She let down her defenses, and they were able to talk about what really mattered, the good news that Jesus came to preach. And so, as I said earlier, she and many of her friends and many people from the town all came to faith in Christ. And so I think for the kingdom of God to be inclusive of all nations, tribes, languages, and peoples, we have to first be willing to go to those like, not like us and meet on common ground. We have a lot of common ground. And then be willing to drink from the same cup. <clears throat> I think that's something we've avoided for a long time. I had a black brother say, Jim, I appreciate you've invited me in your home. We've had a great time there. A lot of white folks have invited me in their home, but nobody has accepted an invitation to my home. And I thought, well, I haven't drank his cup. I thought I was serving him. I thought, oh, no, bro. Hey, I got resources. Hey, I know your, your things are tight for you. And hey, let, let us, you know, no, I wanted to have you in my home and you wouldn't come. I think we have to be willing to meet on common ground and drink the same cup. And so, although I do have concerns about the kingdom, I have great hope because of the word of God. And, and uh, I'll look at one more parable here. Uh, it's in, uh, oh, yeah, back in Matthew chapter 13. Again, a very familiar parable. <clears throat> The parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. And it says in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air may come and perch in its branches. You know, that is a great vision for what we want the kingdom of God to become. We want it to, to grow into, you know, from this tiny little seed into this grand thing that attracts all kinds of birds. And they just come and feel very safe perching in our branches. That's what we want to offer people. <clears throat> and the encouraging thing to me is the power of the kingdom of God is the same as the power of that mustard seed. It's able to become the largest of trees. And so I look at what the possibilities are ahead of us because of the seeds that are in the kingdom of God right now. The seeds of people who want unity, the seeds of people who want to build bridges, they have so much power. But it won't be easy because he adds then in the next verse, he said to them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour, or your translation might say 60 pounds of flour, until it worked, until it worked all through the dough. So I think a lot of us go, well, I I have the seed. I have the desire. So all I got to do is stick it in the ground. He says, no, there's more to it than that. We're going to have to take a little bit of yeast like this woman did and take 60 pounds of flour and work this thing into dough. And yeah, the little yeast affects the big batch, but it doesn't unless it's needed throughout the entire 60 pounds of flour. You know, what we want to do requires a lot of strength and stamina, and we've been given the power to pull it off. 
if we simply choose to persevere. We have the power. And so I don't think I told you that the sermon title was Your Father's Good Pleasure. Your Father's Good Pleasure. And you go, uh, who's Father and what's his good pleasure? It's taken from a passage, not close with this, Steve. It's in uh, Luke chapter 12, in verse 32. <clears throat> uh, very tender words of Jesus. I love when you see the, the Jesus that turns the tables over. But I think at a time like this, I love to see the tender words as well. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. And I, I think when I think about that, I try to personalize it. And I say, God takes great pleasure in entrusting the kingdom of God to me. And he doesn't want me to be scared. He wants to know he believes in me and he trusts me with that little mustard seed. But he also took great pleasure in every single person listening here. He took great pleasure in giving you the kingdom of God. He believes in you. And so I think together as God's holy nation, I think the call is let's make the most of this incredible opportunity. Amen. Thanks. You're listening to audio from the Portland Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to our ministry, please visit www.portlandchurch.org.